to be able to generate that tension because it's actually a very grounding when we think of that. And I think of those types of positions where we're generating tension like that in the pelvis, that is our exhaled position. That is what's grounding us and helping us manage gravity. And so it feels like we can hold up and produce force against the ground. And ultimately that's the name of the game when it comes to strength training and any kind of athletic movements is can you generate that tension and force against the ground in a way that you can really neurologically register. Hey, hey, welcome to the Bodies Built Better podcast. I'm your host, Jackie Tan, and I just want to say thank you for joining me today. This show is all about human performance. The physical, mental, spiritual, emotional, all of the things that encompasses how to perform at your best, we dive deep into with all the incredible guests we have on the show from coaches, athletes, authors, health experts, and scientists who deliver the goods right to your earphones. We explore the body's incredible ability to heal, adapt, and evolve so you can crush limitations, reconnect your body and mind, and discover your extraordinary potential. And today on the show, I chat with trainer and strength and conditioning specialist, Katie St. Clair. What I love about Katie is her holistic approach to movement. If you head to her Instagram or her YouTube channel, you will see her address foundational principles around breathing mechanics, rib positioning, spinal alignment, and pelvis positioning. And it's through these teachings that have helped me become more aware of my ribs, spine, and pelvis in relation to the movements that I'm doing, especially those that require me to lift heavier. And that in itself is such a gift that I'm grateful for. So I'm super excited to chat with her today. In this episode, we cover everything I just mentioned, breathing mechanics, rib positioning, spinal alignment, pelvis positioning. And we go through how to apply this knowledge to your own sport and training. We also talk about women and contact sport and how to train to build that resilience to withstand strong bumps hits and tackles. We go into pregnancy and we also chat towards the end on the language we use on ourselves and around others and being kind to yourself. This episode has so much goodness and I'm so excited to bring this to you. Enjoy this conversation with the incredible Katie St. Clair. Katie, thank you so much for chatting with me today. Welcome to the Bodies Built Better podcast. Thank you so much. I'm super excited to talk to you and talk about all things breathing, movement, everything your audience hopefully wants to hear about. Yeah, they absolutely do. And the thing that I love about you and that I feel, well, first, yeah, I feel like there's not a lot of the content that you provide out there. I follow a lot of trainers and it's, it's all about strength training. And I truly believe every single person on the planet should be strength training. But I feel like a lot of people also training in pain. And I feel like this is the missing golden puzzle piece <laughs> that they need to hear about or um, be aware of anyway. So I'm really excited to chat with you today. Before we get into that, I'd love for you to give the listeners a little bit of background on you, how you got into the industry, and then how you've 
evolved into the trainer you are today? Sure, sure. So I won't go back all the way because I've been (laughs) doing this for 23 years. So that would be a lot to sift through. But I'll say that generally, I always had a passion for movement. I was a young athlete as a gymnast, so pretty serious in that sport from a young age. Um, And I knew that movement really influenced my, not just my physical, but my emotional health. And sort of along the way, I ended up with my own set of injuries, which you hear from a lot of ex-athletes and people who end up as movement professionals because we're trying to fix our own stuff. (laughs) (laughs) And we are coming across systems and things that just don't work or maybe just aren't the right fit for what we need. And so for me, it became a lot of troubleshooting and just figuring out what my own body need. But what I really ended up happening is I started my own business um, probably 15 years ago, serving mostly gin pop, um, younger athletes like high school age. Um, I had done the college athletic thing you know, years before that. But what I realized is that most people that started coming to me were coming to me because they had been injured or they were injured. And the only reason they were coming to me is I was in my mind at the time is that I was good at not causing an injury, but I really didn't have the foundational knowledge to understand how I might actually be able to help them. And while I don't treat pain and I don't diagnose, we know as trainers that people come to you with pain and you have to be able to work around that and at the very least have a trainable menu for them. And so I became good at that, but deep down I was going, but why, but why? Like I need to know so that I can program effectively so that I'm doing more than just finding a trainable menu. And I'm actually finding things that are improving their movement options. So they don't have to live in that small window of options that they have at the current time. And that sort of led me down kind of just a road of discovery, um, both through my own, um, journey with my injuries, and then also just seeking to do better as a trainer for my clients. Yeah. And with the knowledge that you have now, thinking of back those times you were injured, do you go, oh, if I only did this or how would I do that differently? Oh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> too much. So, no, it's just so much to think about because at the time my husband was actually in physical therapy school. And so I had access to some of the best physical therapy therapists in the area at the university level, um, in clinics, you know, I could pretty much get in with anybody I wanted to, and they weren't helping me. And I think I felt sort of defeated inside because there wasn't active participation. It was a lot of passive treatment modalities, them fixing me. And me leaving and going, well, I feel like I'm, I need to see this person every day just to feel normal. Mm. And that doesn't make sense. Absolutely. (laughs) No one is going to have access to somebody to work on them every single day. And even if they do, the body needs you to be an active participant in order to heal. And so, yeah, it's interesting now looking back, I don't think there was one thing I needed to know. There was a understanding of the human body and the and human movement from all the systems, from 
especially from the nervous system and the respiratory system and everything that I do now that I really needed to get a grasp on so that I could be an active participant in my own body, which I think everyone should. I want my clients to understand some of these concepts, maybe not at the level they need to, to teach them, but just to be able to wrap their heads around it and go, oh, that actually makes a lot of sense. And then that creates buy-in and people want to help themselves, you know? Exactly. And that's such a powerful message in itself. And I, you know, like we could even just end the podcast right here, right now, because people need to be an active participant if that's what they walk away with. I think that's so important. And yeah, there are certainly a lot of stories I've had where clients have come in and just have said, nothing is working. I've seen this person, I've seen that person and that person and that person, and I just feel helpless. Mm-hmm. So yeah, this is going to be super powerful. Mm. Mm-hmm. Well, let's start deep. <laughs> we'll start with the organs. What I don't feel like, I mean, they're so important. And I, yeah, I don't feel like they get a mention in movement. What impact do our organs have on our movement? This, I saw this question when you sent it to me and I thought to myself, what do I think? like I'm not really sure but you know I think every system impacts another system so within us we're fluid filled sacks of stuff and all of that stuff interacts with one another and it creates sort of this I want to say like a volume we are that volume and because our organs are alive and moving, they are literally actively moving. Every time we take a breath, our lungs expand, contract. Our diaphragm expands, contracts. Our gastric muscles, our everything, our colon, every single thing inside of us is just constricting and expanding. And that's movement. So every time something constricts and expands, it creates an internal and external rotation component to it. And so if we think about the way the human body works, we're propelling ourselves through space, taking our volume and pushing us into a compressive and expansive side. And that's how we ambulate or walk or crawl or just move across the earth. So we're basically this big, you know, fluid filled, volumetric filled, um, sack (laughs) that is made up of bones and and water essentially. And so me, I go back to like the model of biotensegrity when we look at like a tensegrity structure, which is basically if anybody's watching this kind of one of these, like you can imagine, um, if you don't know what a tensegrity structure is, it's just basically a bunch of lines. And within that is a bunch of these like struts that are hard. And then it's all holding us together. So if you think about it, there's volume pushing out and there's pressure holding us in. And we're just managing that. So I, I guess it's a little out there, but that's the way I see the organs as having a role in movement. Yeah. And then let's take it to the ribs because obviously the ribs are the structure that protects those organs, but it has such a major impact on the rest of the body and how the body moves. Um, let's go with breathing first in terms of what the rib cage is doing how does breath affect the rib cage and vice versa? Yeah, great question. So the rib cage itself, we expand and contract 
using certain respiratory muscles that are, that are meant to be used for respiration, like the diaphragm. That's our main one. And we have what's called a bucket handle. So if you grabbed that, the lateral sides of your rib cage and you pulled them open and took an inhale, it's like bucket handles lifting up. And then if you took a big breath in and tried to fill your chest with air and your sternum kind of lifts and elevates, that would be like your pump handle. And so when we inhale, we want our pump handle and our bucket handle to lift and expand. And then when we exhale, we want them to contract. And deep inside of there is your diaphragm that's elevating and then coming down. And so if we don't, or we lose the capability of those ribs to actually create that expansion and compression, then we'll start to use muscles that aren't really meant to help us breathe because they're trying hard to tug on those ribs to get the pump handle up and try to help our diaphragm work because it's not able to ascend and descend the way that we need to, to be able to get the oxygen that we need and that gas exchange. I am surprised at how common it is that people don't understand, well, not so much understand the mechanism, they don't need to understand it, but don't know how to move their rib cage. And they're so used to breathing up either into the chest or maybe into the belly and the rib cage is so stuck. What happens when it gets to that position and people just go, I don't know what you're talking about in terms of moving the ribs? Yes. So, you know, there's been an evolution I've seen over the past 20 or so years um, when we talk about breath work. And at first it was just sort of this thing that you you do to take a few breaths and calm your nervous system. And that has a huge role in the physiology of what's happening in our body. So when we can use the breath to calm our mind, it stimulates the vagus nerve and we're able to relax. And when our nervous system is calm and we're in that parasympathetic state, we naturally gain more movement options and our joints all move naturally better. So that's one component is the body's, you know, deep, neural connection that is playing a part in this. And then the other part of it is the actual tissues. And so when I say tissues, they're all kind of the same to me, except some are more stiff and some are more compliant. So you can say muscles, fascia, bones, tendons, whatever it is, all of those things change shape. I think people don't realize that bones actually are pliable to a degree. And so over time, if we're say breathing in a shallow pattern where all of the pressure is maybe coming out of our belly, or we've been told how many times have you heard belly breathing in the past, we want to allow our belly to expand. Our chest doesn't move. Well, that makes it so that pump handle doesn't ever lift. And then over time, those bones become a little more stiff might be the word, or they're just not as compliant to allow for the lungs to fill. And so we end up kind of in this cycle of this kind of stiff, rigid rib cage with this pressure pushing down into the belly or down into the pelvis. Um, and again, it goes back to now my neck muscles have to work extra hard or um, my low back muscles, whatever it is to try to get a good inhale because we aren't able to get a good exhale. So vice versa, you can have both. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. And you talk a lot about um, the relationship between the rib cage and the pelvis. So if we're 
let's just say we're shallow breathing because we don't have that connection with the rib cage. What effect would that have on the pelvis? Does so it have there, an effect? Absolutely. So if you imagine that we're just standing up against gravity and there's pressure pushing down on us at all times, we have to manage that. So if our, let's say someone's in an extension pattern, which is basically like a scissor position. So you can imagine the ribs in the front are elevated and their shoulders are pulled back and they're in that almost like military posture, if that's something people can register with, then in that scenario, all the pressure is pushing forward into the belly. So as it pushes forward, it also has to go down into the pelvic, pelvic inlet, which is that big opening between our hip bones. So you can imagine that. So if it's pushing forward into that, you can imagine how the pelvis is going to start to rotate and tip forward. And that has consequences because usually when our pelvis kind of rotates and tips forward, there's also a corresponding external rotation of the pelvic bones. And so now we have pressure that's pushing into the front of the pelvic floor. It's coming out the belly and we're not able to manage all of those organs that are meant to be kind of a good support system to create this nice volume and thoracic cavity that allows us to manage gravity really well, because the, you can imagine now the organs are in different positions. Mm, exactly. Yeah. And so is there an opposite effect that can happen? So if, oh, if the- yeah. I mean, that's just one example, but yeah there's an inherent asymmetry within all of our bodies because of the organs. So we have the, the diaphragm um, is different on both sides. The attachment points are different on the spine and underneath the left or the right diaphragm, we have a liver. And on top of the left diaphragm, we have our heart or I'm um, sorry. Yeah. On top of our left diaphragm heart and under our right diaphragm, we have the liver. So the right diaphragm naturally is going to have an easier time with an exhalation because it can ascend. Whereas the left side, because that heart's pushing down, we're going to live in a little bit more of an inhaled state. And what that does is kind of create this twist inside the body where we start turning the thorax to the right. So the entire rib cage, you can imagine it turning and the spine turning. And as that happens, the pelvis follows along because if I've got a big flare on the left and a more inhaled side on the left, then the left side of my pelvis is now coming forward while the right side is staying back. So this is where we start to get into people, you know, saying things like either the L4, L5 hurts or my SI hurts or because they're creating torque in those joints that are not able to have their full movement options anymore. And so that's one scenario. Another scenario could be that my inlet, that big bowl I talked about is more compressed. That can be just my natural um, genetic predisposition for the way my pelvis is shaped. Um, it could be because I'm a big time lifter and I lift heavy all the time and I've kind of compressed down with muscles and then that whole pelvis can go forward, but we can also get a sway back posture where people kind of tuck their bums under. And this is really common in the 21st century because we're standing with phones in our hands and our heads down. And when you drop your pump handle or your sternum down and compress your chest, guess what happens? your tail tucks underneath you. And how many of us are standing around with our knees locked and our hips forward, staring at our cell phones? <laughs> and your listeners are going to be like, oh, that's right now. <laughs> I was thinking that. <laughs> I'm doing it. Well, that. <laughs> yeah, yeah exactly. it's postural. 
you know, yeah. it's hard to we adapt to the world. That's so crazy. I mean, the whole phone thing is crazy to think about in general and how our postures and even brains will change <laughs> over yes. time, but that's another podcast. Right, right. <laughs> so I and I love I, I love this conversation because yeah, we I feel like we tend to skip over the the rib cage and the pelvis but it can give us so much information, especially if we're in the gym. So I'd like to take it to the gym. Uh, you explained over on your Instagram the other day or week um, about rib flare and a strict press. And if people aren't quite aware what a strict press is, it's basically weights over the head. Um, so tell us about how to even understand if we're rib flaring, how to be aware of it at all to begin with, and then the steps coming back to, to address that? Yeah, that's a great question. And I'll preface it by saying that elite athletes and all athletes use these strategies because it requires less energy and it allows them to get the range of motions that maybe their body doesn't have. So it's not a bad thing. It's only a bad thing if it's preventing someone from being able to move or be able to continue to gain strength because they've gotten so far down the compensation line that everything hurts and they've, they're impinging on their joints and they just truly don't have the ability anymore. But it's okay to use these strategies to win a competition or to be the fastest in the 100 meter or, you know, you know what I'm saying? Or to I do a that. Yeah, absolutely. I don't think it's necessarily something we always have to fix, mm -hmm. but I think adding in some other movement options within accessory work to help balance our system out so we can recover better and prevent some of these major compensations is really such a game changer for most people. So when you look at an overhead press, technically, if I'm going to press my arms up in a strict press, I have to have the available amount of flexion of my shoulder. So the scapula sits on the back of the rib cage and it's meant to tilt forward and tilt back and glide up and glide down and turn in and turn out. If that rib cage is compressed either on the front side or the back side, it's going to change the relationship of the scapula on the rib cage. So if I have a scapula, the shoulder blade that tips forward, let's say over the back of the rib cage, because I've got my chest down. If everybody kind of drops their chest, you can feel how your scapula kind of comes up and those upper traps are active and it pulls forward. Okay. If I stay in that position and I try to raise my arm up overhead, you can even do this in your own body. All of a sudden my arm bone or my humerus is now butting up against the glenoid cavity or the, the joint there of the scapula and the humerus and where they connect. And so all I'm trying to do with people is give them that expansion in their rib cage so that the scapula or the pelvis or whatever bone we're talking about can sit in a good position. So we have more options for movement. So when we push overhead, if I don't have that option here, I can, in you know, at the shoulder joint, I can flare my ribs up and all of a sudden my arms straight up in the air, but my shoulder didn't actually change its range of motion. Boom. <laughs> okay. 
That's, Hopefully yeah, that everybody exactly. can understand that. It's best to just feel it in your body. That's why I always kind of get yeah. those, like, like drop your chest and try to raise your arm and see what it feels like. Yeah, exactly. And and I love that because, and yeah, someone I was chatting with um, a couple of weeks ago in terms of that posture, two things in order to, that we were talking about internally rotating at the shoulders and they felt like, you know, they're at the desk all day. So they're really um, worried about their shoulder posture and neck. And firstly, even you just saying, just lifting up from that position will help straighten things out anyway, right? Like, um, like you said, with that depressed action, everything's forward just by lifting and standing tall. That's just going to sort itself out. But then also, um, how much does breath work play a part in that movement as well? If we're if we're folded forward and everything is sort of compressed down, where's our breathing? Where is that oxygen getting into? Or, you know, is it happening at the top of the the chest? Is it happening into the right in the belly? Um, yeah, this postural change can be impacted by so much and can impact so much (laughs) so coming back to draw me in in a moment coming back to the rib cage and its postural positions I've heard you talk about um the breath and passive and active breathing for rib posture and whilst I've done lots of breath work stuff in the past I, I don't think I've ever come across the term passive and active breathing but when I saw you explain it, everything just changed for me. Can you explain, maybe let's start at what passive and active breathing is and then how that then comes into posture, rib cage, and everything else? So I'll say all breathing is active <laughs> because it's all Yeah, moving. sure, sure. Um, but I think one is sort of like the eccentric. So thinking of the passive as sort of like the eccentric um, uh, part of the breath. So let's say what I do with my students in my courses, I say, okay, I want you to inhale through your nose and hold the air in and wait till the first second that your body says exhale. Like, And when you do that, the exhale just naturally comes because you're ready for it. Or on the opposite, I can exhale and get all the air out and wait until my body says it's time to inhale. And it's like, we just fill with air so that we have in that scenario on that exhale where we're actively pushing the air out and then we're inhaling and just letting it come. I think of that as a little more passive. So that's one way to think of it. When we talk about the drills that I use to change the shape of somebody's body. What we're essentially doing is using more of an active exhale and an active inhale to try to push pressure into areas of the rib cage and the pelvis by constraining those organs in certain ways by putting our body in this kind of crouch down position one way or in a split squat this way, turning our thorax and turning our pelvis. So we're blocking off areas of our body and holding the organs in so that when we take that 
active exhale, the diaphragm ascends up. We have that pause and we take an active inhale where we try to fill the spaces that are allowed to expand. A great one is the chest. So holding the belly in, lifting a little bit through the sternum, but not letting the ribs extend up the lower ribs. So when we inhale, then we get this nice expansion up in the chest wall and our thorax and our ribs actually start to change shape over time. So we literally can change the shape of ourselves, just like we can age and our shape changes. And people say, oh, I used to be two inches taller. You, yes, there is some, <laughs> you know, compression at the spinal level, but also there's this shape change that's happening to us because we're always under gravity. Yeah. And speaking of shape change, um, like what do we, we're talking about how, I mean, if we breathe like we should, that's going to change the ribs. What about the muscles? What, what do we, let's just say we haven't been breathing very well for a very long time and everything is tight and constricted. How do the muscles play a role in allowing us to eventually transition to breathing well? Okay, great question. So I think you can take, I personally take an inside out approach nine times out of 10. So what I mean by that is I think the joints, the joint position dictates the muscle function. So muscles have certain length tension relationships based on where that joint is. So let's say in the example of dropping my chest and the shoulder blade coming forward, now, relatively, my arm bone is going to be relatively more externally rotated in that position. So the back of my shoulder, my rotator cuff muscles are now going to be tighter. Or conversely, maybe my arm is rotating in and now my pec muscles are tighter. Okay, so those become shortened. And then the on the back side, I become over lengthened, like in my rhomboids or um, you know, wh wherever it is, be in your hip, it can be anywhere. So as I lose range of mo motion within the joint, I never get a full lengthening of some tissues and I probably never get a good contraction of other tissues. So now the length tension relationship has changed, not because a muscle became tight because we did something because the joint position changed, whether that's from postural, postural stances over time, um, or, you know, what our sport is, what we have to do to achieve what we need to do. And so I always look at mainly from an inside out also because I don't do manual work. So I'm not a manual therapist. I don't put my hands on people, but also because I think if you can get people to buy into the active participation that we talked about in the beginning, they now, you can, anybody has the capacity to change those length tension relationships by creating pressure where we need it and altering the joint position from the inside out. But I can't, well, I guess I technically could like rub myself down and, you know, <laughs> it's not really, typically people go to a manual therapist. Having said that, it's my not efficient husband, of your time. <laughs> right. Right. My husband does joint manipulations and he does manual work and works on tissues. And I'm so grateful for it because there are those people who have been stuck in those positions for a long time. And those tissues are just restricting, 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 and they need somebody to manually work on them so that they can do 
the active participation and actually get somewhere. Otherwise they're going to feel like they're just like running themselves into the ground. So there's absolutely a, a need for it as well. I just think following up, you're always going to want to come back to the active breathing strategies. Yeah, exactly. What can I do? I, in fact, there's lots I can do. Yes. And that's really empowering because people are like, oh yeah, like my back's a little irritated. Oh, I remember Katie told me to do this position. I'm going to do it really quick. Oh yeah. It feels so much better. Yeah. And oftentimes it doesn't take a lot, you know, exactly. It's, and it's just learning to, to exercise a little bit differently where you're managing pressure just a little bit better. Cause a lot of times, you know, you look back at the industry for years, people, myself included said, don't let your knees go over your toes, push your hips yeah. back. <laughs> well, yeah. So I'm basically creating an environment where my body is kind of moving like a robot and I'm pushing pressure into certain areas only all the time. You know, what, what is that doing exactly? Yeah. <laughs> so there's ways we can balance that out by understanding how to maintain that organ canister a little bit better. Brilliant. <laughs> and speaking of positioning, again, I saw this on your Instagram and this blew my mind. How do we use the rib positioning to engage the glutes more? Oh, okay. <laughs> I think a lot of people are like, why did my glutes just turn on? Doing <laughs> yes. What just happened? So if we go with the model that there, there are iterations in the body and things happen one place and then they happen downstream because we know nothing is happening in isolation in the human body. So if I were to, let's say, be in a position where I'm in that more anteriorly tilted pelvis. In that position, if my pelvis is more externally rotated, then one of the ways I can influence that is by pulling the rib cage back and the pelvis will be in a better alignment because the spine will follow suit and the sacrum at the bottom will either tilt forward or, or tilt back depending on what I need. So depending on what position my pelvis is in, in space, I'm able to leverage the full capabilities of hip internal and external rotation really well. So let's say I go in, everybody can understand like a deadlift or a hinge position of sorts, or RDL. And I go to hinge down and because I don't have good control of the lower ribs, when I go down, my ribs flare, I get an excessive arch in my low back and we see it all the time. Mm -hmm. And when I do that, I actually lose the ability to generate tension through the glutes. So if I, because now my pelvis is dumping forward, so I don't have that good link tension relationship all the way around. And the side butt, as I like to call it, isn't able to kick on quite as much. And the posterior glutes are now not opening optimally. So the back of the pelvis needs to open when you tip forward. And so by exhaling in that position and pulling the ribs back, but keeping the sit bones up, we get this sort of tug of war and you can feel it in your own body. And what it is, is the glutes, you're actually having to hinge at the pelvis and not hinge at your lower back. So now when you hinge at the pelvis, the glutes are in, the posterior glutes are in sort of an eccentric lengthened position. And when we can get muscles to fully lengthen and load eccentrically in the right position, we're gonna get more metabolic changes in the tissue 
and we're going to promote more growth. So it's, and neurologically, the mechanoreceptors within our joints are going to be able to come on board and go, oh, this position in a while. Thank you. Exactly. <laughs> posterior pelvic floor to let go. I forgot what internal rotation was like in my hip. And so that's kind of the connection. The ribs are preventing us from compensating through the lumbar spine or even sometimes higher up in sort of like that T8 to T12 area where the ribs flare. So it's kind of pulling the spine into a good alignment. So the actual changes in range of motion have to come from the pelvis itself. Mm. That's that so means- good. Uh- Well, I mean, it did to me, maybe we could um, give an example for the listeners in a moment, but I'm certainly one that does this because I would think, okay, I've got to have that spine straight, chest up, and I would overcompensate that action by completely lifting um, up through that chest and, yeah, complete rib flare. (laughs) And then I thought, this doesn't feel that great. (laughs) It's harder than it should be, I think. And as soon as those adjustments were made, I'm like, oh, yeah I feel my glutes and I feel the stretch in the glutes as well and then them come on Mm -hmm. that's such a good feeling yeah it (laughs) really is everybody really really does want that you know (laughs) exactly to be able to generate that tension because it's actually a very grounding when we think of that and I think of those types of positions where we're generating tension like that in the pelvis that is our exhaled position. That is what's grounding us and helping us manage gravity. And so it feels like we can hold up and produce force against the ground. And ultimately that's the name of the game when it comes to strength training and any kind of athletic movements is can you generate that tension and force against the ground in a way that you can really neurologically register. And and ultimately that's what these positions are sort of mimicking. Yeah, absolutely. So if people um, maybe got lost along the way, they're in the gym, they're about to do a deadlift, what kind of cues or what would you say that they could look out for when they're about to prep for it? Great. So here's like three cues that I use a lot. So if you imagine the top of your sternum, you have your manubrium, it's like the little notch at the top, kind of a little below your collarbones. Okay, imagine that's a headlight and then imagine your sit bones. So if you're in your chair right now and you're like me, you're kind of sitting on the back of your chair and your sit bones are kind of tucked under a little bit. So your sacrum is kind of tucked. But if you sit up tall, you can feel those little bones at the bottom of your pelvis. So those two bones are your other headlights, okay? Or your rear lights. Now, if I go down to the bottom of my deadlift and I just grab the bar, but I don't pick it up, And I just find that position. A lot of people, I'll tell your audience this, can't actually get to the ground without losing that position. So sometimes it's helpful to start either with the bar elevated or just like with a kettlebell that's a little bit up higher on a box, just so you can get the feeling first and make sure you're not compensating. So when you go down in that position and you're holding the hinge, at that point, I want you to imagine that your your headlights, that sternum headlight, is facing the wall in front of you and the sit bone headlights are facing the wall behind you. They're not, if I were to take those headlights and shine them down on the ground, my back would round. If I were to arch my lower back, 
my headlights would face up a little bit. I want them facing straight back. So the back of your pelvis should feel like it's stretched and lengthened and kind of solid. Now in that position, here's the kicker. Here's the hard part. If you place a hand on your lower ribs and you take an exhale and you imagine your ribs coming back in space up towards the ceiling, your whole thorax is shifting backwards. And if you try this, you're going to see all of a sudden there's this struggle to keep the sit bones up. And so we're wanting to work through that struggle a little bit. At first, you're going to flare your ribs a little bit. That's normal. But create that tug of war and all of a sudden you're going to feel those proximal hamstrings, your glutes, everything really come on board to kind of support your pelvis, support the thorax versus just arching through the back and losing that deep connection. And they can always go to my Instagram and, or my YouTube and I have videos on it too. Yeah. The videos are incredible. (laughs) Go ahead there now. (laughs) I'd love to adapt this information sport specific. We've got a lot of triathletes. um, We've got a lot of runners who listen and a lot of gym goers. So We've spoken about the gym, (laughs) the deadlift, but let's move this. For me, in my mind, cycling is the most interesting sport in terms of the position that you're in, the position that you're in that can be for long periods. And then what that does to the spine, but also the breathing mechanics around that. What are some things that cyclists, should know or at least be aware of taking this information into account the next time they go for their ride? That's a good one. I, you know, I've worked with a bunch of endurance <laughs> athletes. Um, and um, I think, you know, we're adapting these postures in, especially if you're talking to more a distance. So we're looking at aerobic power, aerobic capacity. We're basically living in those zones, maybe some lactic capacity as they go up a hill or whatever. Mm. But for the most part, you have to consider what that's like for the nervous system, how you're managing carbon dioxide in that range. And so some of the things I've been playing around with is a, you have to figure out like, where is the compression in their body? So for a lot of runners, cyclists, it is kind of this chest wall area. Um, I find that most tend to have sort of a the rib cage is straighter and more flared, but really closed down and sort of narrow because they tend to kind of grip down with the rectus. So you can imagine you're on a bike and you kind of round forward, you're reaching forward. You can feel how those upper abdominal muscles are kind of um, clamped down. So sometimes they need to work on kind of releasing the lower ribs so they can widen. But the way you do that is the way that you breathe. So it gets kind of comp- a little bit complex, but if I exhale, say like, I get certain muscles on my internal obliques, those deep transverse abdominals, and that helps to take these straighter ribs and sort of curve them in. So it changes the shape. If I were to go really hard, I get my external obliques on and those straighten my ribs even more. So we have to be careful about understanding how they breathe and then creating a plan for how we can create expansion into the chest wall or into whatever area they might need. Sometimes it's also this kind of 
um, upper thoracic area. And you'll see that kind of notch mm. right around two T3, where the cervical spine then starts to extend forward into that like forward head posture. That's really common too. Um, and so basically you can use the respiratory drills to help improve that or as like a recovery strategy after your event, you know, even just 10 minutes a day is like a massive difference. And then, um, they're like, I forgot what the other part of your question was. I started rambling. Oh yes. I know. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) So if let's say that I know what my body needs in terms of posture and I'm going to do a conditioning circuit as my workout, I can focus on using positions within that circuit that challenge the posture that I'm after. And I can do it at a pace that matches that nervous system pace that I'm looking for in that aerobic capacity, aerobic power. So that, and nasal breathe only. So I'm teaching my body to manage carbon dioxide well, because when we don't and we panic, what do we do? We do whatever it takes to get oxygen as easy as possible, including flaring our ribs, dropping our chest, whatever our strategy is to try to breathe and exhale and inhale easier. And so if you can manage carbon dioxide really well, and you can manage that sympathetic tone and have a good aerobic or anaerobic base, depending on your sport, you're likely going to have less compensations as well. Yeah. Amazing. And I feel like potentially people are going to be going out now and being more aware of their positioning and what's happening because yeah, it's it's really about that awareness of where you're at, what you're doing, and what it feels like. Uh, yes, to be able to then of, make those changes. A client of mine, actually, a patient of my husband's, but I saw her too, and she had that. This remember I told you about the rightward turning thorax. So she mm-hmm. kind of had that. So on her on her bike in her Ironman, I had her kind of turn her left hand sometimes, and she would turn her sternum towards it. So when she inhaled, she'd get this expansion on the back and she'd do that during her ride because otherwise she would be really irritated and it worked. So there are tools you can actually implement into, especially on a bike because you're, you're sitting. Yeah. It's kind of like to be able to do anything swimming, except, you know, make sure you're turning your head both sides and getting air on both sides or and running you obviously there's you can't think about it it's just the shape of your body you know yeah yeah exactly yeah brilliant in australia women's sport is really going off at the moment and so it should it's so awesome to watch but i had an interesting conversation with a client of mine who is a nurse and has been in the er for a long time and she had the opposite opinion to me um because her argument for women in sport, and this is contact sport, was the impact it has on the pelvis. And then obviously because they're young women, what that means, you know, if later on they want to be bearing children. I find this conversation an interesting one. I'm wondering if you have an opinion on females in contact sport, what that does to the body or the pelvis in particular, um, or e- even the the ribs, because obviously the ribs have an impact on on the positioning of the the pelvis as well. Do you have any thoughts around that? 
I mean, do not let it stop you. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, my thoughts completely, yeah. but it's, it's an interesting one to think about. It's hard for me to imagine that it's going to have some like n- entirely negative effect on the mm. pelvis. I mean, I guess I'd have to understand the context, like what the sport was or, um, that's very interesting. I, and I can't imagine it would necessarily have an impact on the reproductive system from like the actual ovaries and uterus and all of that. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's why our bodies are the way they are because they're very resilient to stress or, um, any sort of forces from the outside. Having said that, I think, you know, Good training involves a level of understanding the pelvic floor for everybody, not just females, men, everybody. And men are just susceptible, just as susceptible to pelvic floor issues, but females, ours just show a lot more in the form of prolapse and continence and, um, males it's, it might be a little bit different. So they're able to kind of hide it. Um, even though they're having issues, not that they're trying to hide it, but you know, it's not right there happening. Um, so I can see how the pelvic floor could play a role. Um, but I don't know. I, I don't think that contact sports are necessarily a bad thing for women in particular. I don't know how mm. they would be any better for men either because head injuries. You know? Yeah, exactly. That's right. There's so much to it. Cool. <laughs> so I just wanted to see what your thoughts were yeah. around that. I um, never thought much about it. What about in terms of, um, I guess, preparing and building um, women's bodies for contact sport? Because, I mean, we're, we're a lot more flexible than, than men. So in terms of protecting ourselves from the hard hits that we get um, uh, at the body, how can we build and prepare ourselves so that we are resilient to strong, forceful hits? Yeah. So this is a really great topic. Um, and I, it's one of my favorite things to think about, which is the role of sort of the non-contractile tissues or tendons and our ligaments. And we know that females, we have more estrogen and estrogen with that comes an increase in lysol oxidase. There's lots of research, um, out there about the role of that. And it creates a more compliance in those tissues, which is why we may be likely are susceptible. Keith Barr had a paper that came out not too long ago about ACL injuries and this connection between certain parts of the cycle where we have more estrogen release. So, um, in terms of the nutritional component of that, I know that there is some science behind that. So if somebody is interested in looking into that, or you have, you know, athletes listening, there are people that are well-versed in that information. I am not one of them, but if you're a high level athlete and you are in contact sports, I think it's definitely worth looking into to help support your body from a nutrition aspect to prevent, and also look at, um, training methodologies and understanding your cycle and maybe knowing when you have high times of estrogen. So what we can do is use certain types of exercises that are either more yielding or overcoming is the way I kind of think of it. So a yielding exercise is likely going to create more compliance in the system. So if you imagine I do a depth drop or I just hop off a box, but I sort of let my knees kind of sink into this deep squat and there's nothing rigid about it. In that scenario, I'm sort of creating this eccentric load where the tendon is able to kind of release and relax. 
And that's really useful for limiting stiffness and creating metabolic change in the muscles and allowing for this good symbiotic relationship between the non-contractile and the contractile tissues. But if you have a lot of laxity, like you talked about, maybe what you need is some stiffening of those tissues because those are our free energy. When we think of tendons, that's where we can get that little, you know, spring that feels like you're not even working at it and you're just popping off the ground and you're able to cut really quickly. And so working on things that promote stiffness, which is more of these overcoming concepts. So that would be, if anybody's familiar with a Bosch clean, or you could even think like a, a quick pogo jump or like a, um, a, uh, broad jump, like a double broad jump or a depth jump to, you know, actually propelling as quickly as you can. So there's lots of different variations you could use. And that is going to create some stiffness in throughout the system, but you can also lift in a way that creates more stiffness. So number one is going to be build muscle. mass. So we need those metabolic changes to just get stronger in whatever way we have to. Number two is using things like overcoming isometrics where, where you like pull up on something that doesn't move and that generates a different amount of tension. It's sort of a, a neural type tension. It's more neurologically demanding and it creates more stiffness in a different way. Um, and if you imagine, if you think about like a contact sport, that is a very neurologically demanding activity, right? So it can help you prep you, not just from a tissue standpoint, but also from a, a physiological, emotional standpoint for your mm. sport as well. If you ever had a workout, I explain it like, so let's say I'm doing like a, some sort of like French contrast or contrast training where I'm doing like, you know, heavy, heavy lift followed by a short burst of like a really intense plyometric. And when you get done with a workout like that, your body's like, you're like amped. You're, you're ready to go all day. You feel like you have a ton of energy. But if you do something where you're doing a lot, like four sets to failure of like 10 to 15 reps, I don't necessarily feel that nervous system energy. I feel fatigued in my mm. muscle. And so those are two very different ways of training. And I think you can cycle it throughout the year because one provides that muscle base that would be really nice um, to support your actual sport, but you might not have the time nor the energy to be doing these metabolic type workouts, you know, in mm, season. And so you absolutely. might just, just enough of those kind of neurally demanding stiffening type activities to keep you going. Um, Cause there's a lot you can get out of, let's say, eight sets of th two to three reps, and maybe your workout is just much shorter and just focused on this kind of intensity, um, you know, a couple times a week. But yeah. again, I'm not, it, it would all depend on the strength and conditioning staff and all exactly. of that. Yeah. Yeah. And pre-season and in-season and all of the things. Yeah. Let's talk about pregnancy for a moment, because obviously when you're growing a human, <laughs> <laughs> that sits inside of you in the pelvis things lots of things change so in terms of our breathing in terms of the rib cage um how can we really support obviously what's happening internally um but also physically with or muscularly sorry um with the muscles that support the rib cage that support um you know the growing belly that support the the hips that are getting 
you know, opening wider and getting a little more lax so that, you know, we, we can move safely and feel good throughout, you know, the nine months. Yeah. It's a hard thing to do. <laughs> um, <laughs> I know I was waddling around definitely by month nine, you know, <laughs> I remember my comp, my clients commenting of like, they're like, I think you're waddling. Like really? I definitely am. <laughs> My hips are not moving much at this point. I'm just holding on. Um, so breathing is so key because we know we can use the breath to allow the pelvic floor to relax and we can use the breath to strengthen the pelvic floor. And just like all the other muscles in our body, we need that eccentric component. And a lot of times when we're pregnant, we actually, you would think, oh, you're really lengthened down there and maybe a, to a degree you are, but if you're walking around a lot, you you're going to kind of grip sometimes to hold up. So the response, if you have a bunch of pressure pushing down is to pull back. Right. And so it's really important, um, to teach women how to breathe and relax the pelvic floor. It's also going to make the birthing process a lot easier. Um, there are certain times, um, where, so as the baby's dropping down and you're getting bigger, the, one of the keys is to, allow the pelvic floor, the pelvic inlet to open and get wider so that the baby can drop down. So at a certain point you want that to happen. But when you're going into labor, we actually want the pelvic outlet. So the bottom of the pelvis to be nice and open and wide and certain positions help the pelvis to change shape, depending on how much hip flexion we're in, how close our knees are, how far apart they are, things like that. And so we can make it easier during those times to allow for comfort level, but also just, again, allow the pelvis to move really well so that they have an easier time. And then I think the big thing is, obviously, you have a lot of pressure pushing forward. So maybe doing some breathing. Um, I like to suggest to women, um, you can just kind of lay on a wedge. Um, a lot of times they have those like pregnancy wedges in the bed or something to lift up on and lay on your side and bring your knees up towards like 90 degrees and just kind of curl up a little bit, just a tiny bit and take an inhale and you can breathe into the back body, like into the backside of your ribs. Because if you're standing a lot and you are, have gone into that kind of rib flare and everything's pushing forward, that can just give a lot of release and re like relief to the low back, um, as well. Um, and then for training aspects, I think go as long as you can. And when you don't feel comfortable with the added pressure from gravity, just take it away, use machines, gravity, RX, whatever you have to, to keep things strong and highly recommend conditioning at that point. I think nasal breathing conditioning, um, long duration is so amazing for the nervous system. And just, it's kind of, I remember without even really knowing all this information is my son is, um, eight now. Um, but I remember exactly what it felt like to have done, you know, my aerobic work throughout my pregnancy. And then I had him and like a month later or whatever, a couple months later, I'm in the gym and I'm doing the step mill. And I thought to myself, this feels way too easy because I had just loaded it for months with the extra 20 exactly. pounds, you know, like over time and carrying another human. And then all of a sudden that's gone and my legs were stronger. <laughs> I'm like, this is so easy. Why am I not breathing hard? 
So it's kind Fantastic. of a new experience, you know, yeah. um, because if you are starting back, I had a uh, diastasis and people will have prolapse and all kinds of things. So no matter where you're coming back from, there is going to be a rehabbing process mm. and it's okay to kind of take it slow. But I think if you have a really good base of strength and aerobic capacity prior to, it just makes that time period so much better. Yeah. Well, tell us more about that conditioning. What did you do and and what could people do? I honestly did any like machines. I did the little stepper. I did the yeah. step mill. I just walked on an incline, you know, whatever yeah. it took to kind of get my heart rate up, but not, I think at one point I kind of was like, okay, I'm going to just be on the bike, you know, whatever yeah. felt comfortable in my yeah. body, but that I could keep an elevated heart rate, um, just to maintain that capacity. Cause I think people like it's, I can see this. It's very easy to just feel exhausted throughout mm. the pregnancy. And look, if you can't do it, just lay on the couch. It's fine. Yeah, <laughs> but absolutely. You know, going through the recovery of having a baby is no joke. Like it's, we look at it and because I think we're in sort of this, I have to care for another human now and make sure they stay alive. You sort of don't, you don't even think about what's happening with your body. And then all of a sudden, when things settle down a little bit, maybe the baby's sleeping through the night after three or four or five months, whenever it is, and you're like, oh man, my body is a wreck and I don't know what happened. And I'm nursing and I'm, you know, carrying this car seats. And so there's a lot that goes into it that frankly, in our country, I don't know about Australia. It's probably better than anything we have here. But I mean, women, I remember I was a contractor at the gym. And they were only going to give me eight weeks of not paying my fee. And I thought, man, do I need to go back in eight weeks? Like I had a C-section and my, like I went back in 10, but I don't think that's right. There's so much happening. It was hard to breastfeed. You had to pump all the time. And so if you can find some support in the way of like your physical and mental health, it's just a game changer. And, you know, I think we're trying in this country to get to a better place, but most companies, most places don't provide, um, you know, depending on what state you live in that sort of, it's not a luxury. You literally had a child. Yeah. (laughs) It's just a weird, it's a weird way of looking at, um, what happens. Whereas if you had like a knee replacement or whatever, you would take time off, you know, (laughs) know at least 12 weeks. Yeah. And they're giving but you eight. <laughs> yeah. Do what you need to do, wow. but don't necessarily, I think so. And I think unfortunately that has led to this mentality of like, look how I got my body back in six mm-hmm. weeks. And it's like, okay, like, for what? Like Exactly. <laughs> there's no metal I mean, at the end. There's no like, rush. Yeah. yeah. That's right. And at what cost to your body? Exactly. Because maybe you've got pain or pelvic floor problems or um, some sort of hernia or whatever it is now, because you didn't do it progressively slow yeah. enough you know, to change over time. And also at, at what cost to your mental health? Yeah. Putting that pressure on yourself. Yeah. And I mean, we, the baby's so important. So like you have to think about how your milk supply is coming and all those things, if you are going to plan on breastfeeding, so you can't push your body too much. I do remember, um, having to be very conscious once I did start working out to make sure that my milk supply didn't go down. Um, and I could actually see when I would amp up my exercise, how that would have an effect. And mm. so just have to lay off until, yeah. you know, make sure you eat enough, all that kind of stuff. 
Yeah. Uh, everybody's so different too. And they're so different. Experience. Yeah. yeah. And your body's going to communicate with you. It's just a right. matter of listening. Listening. That is the best point. Yeah. Just actually <laughs> listen. Don't ignore it. <laughs> exactly. How important then is it communicating with your clients and, you know, these sorts of conversations and the language that we use? I mean, it's, I have clients come in who come in for a massage and will be like, I'm so bad. I didn't do this or, or I, or I can't do this because of whatever it is. How do you, how do you make sure that we're trying to use at least um, a more nurturing language um, to, to help us realize that it, it's not so much black and white, bad or good. Um, we can't do this. Therefore we're this. How do you manage that in, in your um, experience? That's a really good question. I don't really know the answer to necessarily. Um, I think, you know, in general, being a good communicator, sometimes I think it's just something you have maybe from the way you grew up and, but I do think it can be developed. I think if you understand who you are and you are solid within yourself and you are empathetic with yourself, it's really much easier to be empathetic with others. So if you hear one easy way to, to catch it is I see somebody and I even just have the thought of judgment of you should do that, or she's not doing that or whatever it is. That's because that is me saying that to myself as well, because that is how I would judge myself if I were doing that. And then if you have children, it's very easy to catch yourself because you realize how important it is to develop a language of positive, you know, accomplishment and raise them in a way that they know that there are standards that will allow them to get to a place that they want to get to. So like, what are your goals? But in a way that creates a positive outlook on things. So I think the same thing sort of exists in all of our relationships, whether we're talking about training, nutrition, like, you know, dealing with kids, whatever it is. Business. Yeah. So just being able to put yourself in the moment, in the present with somebody, pay attention to what they say, listen to them constantly and make sure you, I remember like I, I've told people this a million times. I had a solid book of clients for 15 years on my own because I was good at being like, um, so how's your daughter? So-and-so or like, remember that's all they're paying attention to. And if I can get them coming back for sessions, then slowly over time, we can build these habits and create change. But if I don't create that environment. I don't have a chance because I'm only going to keep them for a couple months. And then what's the point? They'll just have wasted that time with me that they could have been with a trainer that might be, you know, creating a more conducive training environment for me. I mean, even, I even think about which music I'm putting on when people come in, I change yeah. the music. I know what music they like, you know what yeah. I mean? <laughs> Favorite song. Brilliant. I have the playlist pick for each person. You know? Yeah. But it, 
And I think that can be an energy thing too. So if I have somebody come in and they are kind of down and sluggish, then on a regular basis, maybe I'm playing something that's helping them feel a little more upbeat, you know, when they're with me, or, um, if they just need a moment to talk and they're, they don't need a hard workout, that's okay too. Yes. work, you know, making these changes to me, I just said this in other podcasts on the front of my website. That's why he asked me about it. But my number one value as a coach is to create a love of movement for everyone. And the only way you can create a love of movement is by finding ways to understand what makes them tick yeah. and then making sure that what you're doing with them corresponds with that. Mm. So it's not easy necessarily, but it's not that hard. And it's, it can be so joyful for us. Not always. Sometimes you're going to get those difficult clients. It's like, oh my God, this is the longest hour of my life. But <laughs> for the most part, people are really generally happy to see us, you know, yes, like how, how often, do you have, I don't know. Sometimes I feel like in the manual world, like PT and are you a body worker? Yeah. Yeah. Remedial massage. So I feel like sometimes you guys get more of the you know, I feel really bad and people's energy can be down because they hurt. Yeah. Whereas people are coming to see me and they generally want to work out, they're ready to have fun. And, you know, it's part yeah. of the reason I to go into physical therapy or anything like that, yeah. because it, I just recognize how much it takes emotionally to be in that presence mm. a lot. I see my husband yeah. do it. It's, it's interesting. Yeah. I feel what you said um, in terms of being aware of how you, what you've said and, and what that actually means that, well, maybe that's your judgment actually on yourself, not so much on them. Um, and Eve, I, I love that having that awareness to begin with is super powerful to actually stop yourself mid thought and actually go, wait, <laughs> I'm actually thinking this and what does that mean? Um, but also I feel like it's so much easier to be so um, empathetic or compassionate towards others, but for yourself, it's, it's that little bit harder. I, I, I don't know. I think for me, I'm very much going to talk to my friends in a much nicer nurturing way than I would myself. I catch myself and go, oh, come on, Jackie, don't be so hard on yourself. But yeah, that language, language is so important. Um, and yeah, making small changes is super crucial. Yes. I don't envy people who work in the nutrition space. That is one thing I'll say. Yeah. Wait, you're I a nutritionist, that- aren't you? No, I'm, I have what? a nutrition degree. Degree, okay, right. Exercise science, but um, <laughs> okay. I, I kind of, I did this weight loss challenge thing for years out of the medical university here and it was great, but I just, I burnt out with the ability to make quality lifestyle changes. <sighs> I think it takes a really special person to, to somehow, you know, create that buy-in. Like mm. the stuff I do is easy because the, you see an instantaneous change. The person goes, oh, wow, my back feels so much better. Or, oh, wow, my shoulder's like moving completely different. And it can be in five minutes. Yeah. And so you get buy-in so quick and people are like, yeah, I'll keep doing that. And you have the clients who are like, 
I didn't do my exercises, but for the most part, you can still be like, but you know, if you do them, it's going to feel better. Right. And then they'll go do them. Whereas with nutrition, because there's, it takes so long to see the mm. result. Um, I think it's difficult. Really? You know? Yes. So Super difficult. hard. Yeah. <laughs> uh, like, uh, how do you go? But I feel good when I have that piece of chocolate. <laughs> I right. covered in sprinkles. It yeah. makes me feel the salad quite makes the me feel good as the chocolate. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it's just so I there's so much emotion tied to yeah. Yeah. food. You know, That's a rabbit hole. That one. Here, like I love like the social aspect of food. I like to cook yes. for people. I love, you know, I eat healthy, but not like I'll say healthy-ish. Yeah. Like I really love food. And so for me it's I'm very grateful and lucky, you know, um, that we always had meals at home and I grew up in that environment. So I never had any negative, um, negative, you know, feelings Mm. about or around food. Um, so it's also probably harder for me to be empathetic in that way or really understand what it's like, you know? Um, and I think sometimes the people, so I refer out to a few people who I just think are fantastic and, you can see their passion. Like they've been through it. They've been there. Like that's why they want to help other people. And I think those are the people who are really good at it because they understand what it took, you know? Exactly. Yeah. The ones who've been through the journey. Mm -hmm. What is something that you used to teach or used to train and you now look back at it on it and go, Oh, don't know why I did that. Or that's not so good glad I don't do that anymore and you did say earlier on it was the don't go the the knee over the toes that that was oh yeah that's, that's <laughs> easy moved on from. yeah I mean there's so many things <laughs> I mean there's a learn. lot like 30 minute ab classes you know where <laughs> you're just doing crunches for 30 minutes that was so good for anybody's body um it, things come full circle too I find it interesting so I've had been guilty of being dogmatic about things in the past because we switched gears or the industry said, this is no longer good. We're going to do this. So, uh, an instance would be, we're not going to do these over toes, or we're not going to let the knees go over to the toes. And now everybody wants to push the knees over the toes. Like, and so I would say maybe not one thing, but having a viewpoint of being dogmatic in something at all and saying anything is wrong is probably something I look back on and cringe and wish I never did that because there's value in everything likely. And we really know how it's impacting the system. And so we do our best and making mistakes. I don't even like the word mistakes is an opportunity for learning and really, you know, allow if you have some sort of like this is wrong this is right it makes it feel like it's harder to make mistakes because then you feel wrong Mm. and um so anytime I've ever put that out there to anybody else I would feel terrible now looking back I'm not sure I can recall exact incidences but I know that I've been there before and now as an educator I just want everybody to know that they their mistakes are their learning opportunities and there is no wrong or right and anything you've done in the past is a great thing because you learn something from it and it is what it is. Right. <laughs> exactly. You can't, yeah, you can't change it. Right. And nobody's trying forward. to do it. Look, because you don't put your, push your knees over your toes or you always push your knee, knees over your toes. 
are you creating some sort of pathology in the body? Likely not. It, it takes more than that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know? oh, I think that's a really great message though. Like there are no mistakes as long as you, you know, you can take something from it and, and learn and evolve and grow from that. Yeah. I mean, that's what I'd want to tell my son or anybody Yeah, you know, in the younger generation. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Katie, this has been so wonderful. I could go on so many rabbit holes with you, but we won't because that could be <laughs> way too long for a podcast. Where can people find you? And if they want to work with you, how can they do that? Sure. Thank you so much. This was great. And you're such a pleasure to talk to. And I love your thoughtfulness in the interview. Um, so you can find me on Instagram. It's Katie St. Clair Fitness. You can find me on my website, katiesaintclairfitness.com um, and YouTube. I So I do Instagram. I try to give some information, but when I really get an idea that I love, I do a long form video on YouTube so that you actually benefit from it. And I send it out to my email list. So you can always get on my email list. And I try to send those a couple times a month, just some really genuinely good content, not a mm. one minute soundbite on Instagram. Um, <laughs> there's some fun stuff on there. Yeah. Um, and then I have a course, if you're a professional, a movement professional, I've had some non-movement professionals that are just really gung-ho and interested in learning about the body do it. Um, and that's the empowered performance course. So that's my big course. And then I have a couple of smaller courses that are sort of DIY to help everyone be able to navigate the position of their pelvis, their rib cage, their scapula, and learn about some of these breathing drills that I'm talking about so they can really start to feel better in their bodies. And um, those are on my website as well. Yeah, beautiful. And they're such game changers. And it's your videos are fantastic because of the way you explain, but really show it. You show, and for me, I'm such a visual person. So to be able to see what it is you're saying is just perfect thank you this has been wonderful I'd love to end off with a question that listeners can apply to their lives straight away so what is something that you want people to know when they're trying to improve their movement and their mobility I would say that everything is influenced by the nervous system and our best access to manipulating that is our breath. And so learning more about why that is to change your movement and to change your physiology and have autonomy over your body is incredibly important. Amazing. So awesome. Katie, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. I had a great time talking to you, Jackie. That was Katie St. Clair. Make sure you head over to her Instagram or YouTube channel and check out her awesome videos. If you want to check out any of her courses, the website address is in the show notes with the links provided for you. Whether you're a health pro or just someone who wants to get the best from their body, she's got something for you. And that's what I love about everything that she does. 
It was such a pleasure to chat with her. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. If you did and you want to help us out, share this with your friends and family and give this episode a review because that review will help others flicking through the billions of podcasts out there and show them why they should listen into this one today. As always, thank you so much for tuning in. I appreciate you. Have the best day, week, month and year. Stay awesome and we'll catch you next time.